Can we turn this down? It's not that loud. Really? Yeah. Feels louder than usual. Oh, wait, hold on. Are you sure? I don't believe you. Yeah, you're a little bit louder than usual. Oh, good ear. Thank good you. Good ear. Thank Shut you. Shut up, Alex is rolling. <laughs> Quiet on set, Alex. We got a late start um, today. No one's fault. Well, yeah, it's Alex's fault. It's not really Alex's fault. He scheduled a call. Well, yeah, there's no way he would have known, right? It wasn't in the Google calendar. Yeah. So that's our fault, especially as people who we are like the biggest champions of the calendar and using tech tools and we kind of let it go there. We're the ones that dropped the ball. How's it going today, Sharice? Uh, it's all right. I, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about the food poisoning. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. So it's Ooh. not. Since I'm the one that's going to be controlling the editing process, we don't have to go into it, but I'll include that bit. Okay, I'll take it a little bit more serious. So yeah, uh, I think the one thing that we've been working on recently has been how to, I guess, evolve or redefine the make and briefing. Mm -hmm. I guess in general news, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is this is something that we've we've identified and. You know, it's not, it's never that we make and didn't want to do news. It was so much as how can we do it differently or how can we do it in a way that we feel adds value rather than noise. And, you know, in the very beginning, all we focused on was like basically long form audio editorial. Yeah. Right. And it's gone. I think that, that in itself has sort of proven it, proven to be successful, but what is sort of the everyday interaction with making? Like, I don't think there is really that opportunity for us to interact with people on a daily basis, all while knowing, Hey, you know what? We come across a lot of cool things that we want to contextualize. We want to, you know, share with readers, listeners, whatever it may be. Right. I think what I think about is a lot of people do news. There are many places where you can find news. And so why should we also cover time sensitive information when you and I consume a lot of that stuff elsewhere. You know, what do we bring to it that is different? What value would someone get out of us covering that information? Yeah. And when I was, when I was kind of going to the drawing board, I was trying to figure out what are ways that we could do this differently. And I came up with this really, I'm proud of it, but it's also kind of stupid, this acronym called <laughs> SPARK. S-P-A-R-C. Oh, no, no, no. Originally, right, okay, fine. originally, Eugene comes to us and he says, I've come up with this acronym, CARPS. Okay, CARS with a P between the R and the S. A fish, like fish. basically. Yeah, CARPS. And I I was joking and I was like, maybe it should be CRAPS. And then, who was it? Like Alex? No, it was me. Okay. I was like, oh, okay, fine. If you guys don't like that, let's go with SPARK. Yeah, which is the most positive sounding one. Yeah, so that means simplicity. How can you tell news in a way that just really cuts through everything, provides you what you need to know, a purpose? You know, this is something that I think lacks a lot in news in creative culture in terms of, you know, what is the purpose of this? Is it really just to, you know, fulfill a business function of getting another click, right? Is there an angle to it? Um, I'm going to come back to angle because I think it's something very interesting and worth exploring uh, in greater detail. Um, R for relevance. Is this relevant to readers? Is this relevant to the present or the future? And context, like what are the things surrounding this rather than just the actual act itself, but why is this important? So I think there's a little bit of overlap between those different points. But when it comes to angle, this is the one that 
is a little bit of a touchy subject because news inherently should be devoid of opinion or insight, right? It should be very objective. Yeah, yeah. So our take though is we're trying to find a way to ensure this has importance in your, you know, to your daily life, yeah. right? So I, what does that mean? I don't oh, sorry, really like the word, not that I don't like the word news, but I don't like to call what we're doing as news because I do think of news as that non-opinionated, objective this happened like this is the thing that happened on this date involving this person right and like we're not going to be the person who tells you that for the first time yeah no that's definitely valid but i i I think that the general media landscape now is different in that if you don't have sort of this point of view for better or worse then you can't build a brand if you can't build a brand you kind of get lost in a sea of a ton or a million other media outlets so that that to me is critical, right? And it it definitely is something that probably was not as welcome. I don't know, five, ten. I don't. I don't even want to put a, a number on it, but I don't think it's something that was as welcome in the past. I think Vice does a good example of providing an angle or an editorial slant to their news. Like I think the Charlottesville documentary was to me the best representation of how media needs to position itself because I guess when you're coming up against social media, a publication can't beat social media for speed and for virality and all that stuff. But what it can do is collate all the different bits of information and provide meaning. And I think that's what the Charlottesville Vice documentary did. If you guys aren't familiar, it's a free documentary that Vice released that highlighted the Charlottesville protests and basically went in depth into the the groups associated with it. And, you know, if I wasn't I mean, over the course of those those events, you could see what was going on, but you didn't really know what was going on because it was just like thrown at your face. You know, like you kind of needed to do the due diligence of weeding through it yourself. That's where media comes in, right? And it does the weeding for you and it adds sort of a perspective and it helps package the ideas for you. I think the thing that I want to keep in mind when we start doing, when we explore what doing other writing pieces besides the long form editorial looks like is to have an angle, but still be even handed and fair. I think having an angle, um, can force you to have force a writer to have an opinion sometimes when it's not necessary to be really strongly opinionated about something. So for myself, like that's what I want to be cautious of. Yeah. I mean, and what what will this look like on Macon? To be honest, like we'll start with the briefing, but I think the goal is eventually bring what we learn in the briefing, the mem- which is currently a members only newsletter, bring that onto the site as well. So we can start exploring things on a more frequent basis. We'd love to get feedback from you as a listener or making members in Slack about how you consume news, what you feel like is lacking in the media landscape or how we can not be more of the noise that you feel like you have to cut through. If this is your first time tuning in, the way this works is that Eugene picks a topic from the last two Macon briefings. I pick a topic from the last two, and then we try and hash it out with each other, get some thoughts on those two topics. Um, And today we are going to start with Eugene. Yeah, I'd be happy to kick things off for us, Sharice. All right, don't roll your eyes at me. (laughs) Well, it's just because like... 
They don't they don't know that it's a pun. Well, they'll retroactively understand how funny it is. Okay, Anyways. Sure. So my topic this week is Coke signs a virtual athlete, aka a make-believe character in a video game. They signed Alex Hunter, who's the star of FIFA 18, which if you're not familiar, it's a football game by EA Sports, soccer, football soccer. Okay, wait, but my understanding of FIFA is based off of you guys playing it. And that's like with real teams that exist. So how can there be a star? This is a new mode that launched in FIFA 2017. So what it is, it's like an RPG style approach to being a player who comes up the ranks in hopes of becoming, you know, a professional. So you're basically, you're playing through challenges. You're living the life of a high profile football star. Wait, but do you start out as a nobody? Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah. So maybe a little bit of background. Um, the journey, which is a story, the story mode started, uh, last year in FIFA 2017, uh, FIFA 2018 is actually releasing, uh, on Friday. Well, it depends 26th. If you bought this more expensive package. Wait, what um, do you mean? You guys are already playing. Playing a demo. Oh. Yeah. Demo. Yeah. So the journey itself follows the life of Alex Hunter, the grandson of a famous British footballer as he tries to make his way into English Premier League. Despite being a virtual character, he signed a deal with Coca-Cola Zero Sugar, aka Coke Zero, depending on what part of the world you're in, which is the Splenda-infused Coke. It comes in the black can. Oddly enough, this is not the first time Alex Hunter, the character, has signed a big contract as Adidas signed him in FIFA 2017. Is there any storyline where you don't sign with Adidas or you don't sign with Coke? From what I understand, it is an achievement you unlock. So in FIFA 17, Alex Hunter managed to get 200,000 followers on Twitter. And somehow he was rewarded with a contract by Adidas. (laughs) I actually have a clip. Feels like that's a false equivalency, but all right. I actually have a clip that I'm going to run right now and you guys can listen to it. Super Alex Hunter (laughs) and the legends. Hey, Jim. How's it going? We're working. Oh, yeah. A little performance analysis. This won't take long. Never had that in your day, eh, Jim? Mm. These are sick. Which one's your favorite? So what's really interesting about this is that in a time and place when athletes are liable to fly off the chains, you know, get embroiled in some scandal... For example, you know, drunk driving is a big one, like Wayne Rooney recently, or drink driving, as they call it in the UK. Yeah. Let's not talk about that. You, <laughs> okay. you made a face at me. What? It's drunk driving, drink driving. I don't know. We'll get Cody Tom to explain. Tom from Briggs don't come to me at that. Yeah, okay. we'll just have someone else to explain that. Um, yeah, they're virtually risk-free, right? The whole narrative is controlled, what they say, what they do. So what's interesting is that this is inherently a form of advertising, right? And usually advertising... It's usually not welcome, but in the context of a video game, I think it's welcome because it creates a sense of realism and authenticity to the game. Because the real life Premier League football world, et cetera, is full of brands and sponsors, right? It's, yeah, it's massive, right? And like, it's so different because for however long you've always had football kits that have had sponsors and now they're selling sleeve sponsors too. And there's, it's this massive segregation. It's like you can sponsor a training kit, but not be on, you know, the um, the game kit. Actually, this this is 
a perfect segue to a question I had. When you play FIFA regularly, do the kits reflect the actual kits? Yep. Like they have the same sponsors? Yep. That's so interesting. Because yeah. NBA doesn't. I think it is interesting how in real life, if who's a realistic football team sponsor? Um, that would be like on a jersey. Emirates. Okay. So if Emirates is on airlines, that team's jersey in real life, they can know that in FIFA, they're going to be on those team jerseys as well. Yeah. So in a way, they're kind of like signing or they get extra or I don't know how to say this. Like it comes with the package of signing that team. Yeah. I wonder if they get paid off of that or like how that works. But anyways, what's fascinating is that for the longest time, the kits have always been walking billboards in football, right? Especially if you go to like South America, they're, they're filled with ads. Whereas other sports like the NBA, even the inherent design of the jersey, right? You dedicate so much real estate to the team's logo and, and many times the number too, right? And there's no sleeves. And now there's like sleeve sponsors that are entering. So I was looking up, you know, branding done well in other video games. And do you remember how I mentioned those Nike interactive jerseys? Yes. Wait, like before, right? Yeah, in a separate conversation. So how it works is that there are these new Nike NBA jerseys. And if you scan it, they unlock, like if you scan this sewn in patch, it unlocks exclusive in-game currency or other exclusive content yep. for you. Yeah. So it is branding in a way, but different in the sense of like Nike didn't sign a player so much as like Nike in the real world is linking up with this virtual world. Yeah. I, I honestly think it's amazing. Like this is to me really exciting. Um, not because like I get exciting over advertising per se, but I think that advertising done well and in an innovative manner like this, like it, this is actually not really creating a massive wedge because it does have this value of authenticity, which I think I still remember back in the day when you'd play a video game that didn't have the proper licensing and they would always have like this bootleg like sneaker or something that you knew exactly what it was, but it was definitely not a brand thing. Yeah. It's and so strange how that works. Where like I don't even remember when this started. I want to say like back in the day with Tony Hawk and they started introducing like skate yeah. brands. It might have been right around that era. Yeah. Where as players, like as video game players, we need those real brands to be in the game to feel accuracy. Yeah. You know, to feel reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having brands in games is oddly satisfying. Like there's something about it. Like I know it's a video game and, but just to see things that are happening in real life replicated in a game is, I don't know what it is. Cause you're always obviously creating these, these make-believe worlds, right? Like I don't, I would never play the journey mode on, on FIFA because I, I like playing against other people, whether it's like online or like, you know, when I do play online, I don't play online that often. But we when should I play, insert a recording of you playing with other people here, except that it would immediately make this podcast explicit instead of clean. Yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I, I wouldn't, I wasn't sure if that was an aside, but yeah, maybe we'll, maybe I'll throw a clip in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay calm, stay calm. 
What do, do you think there is a an area where this could encroach and be unwelcome in a video game setting? So, is it just the frequency it appears or? One reason I think it works so well for FIFA and NBA 2K is because the real life football, basketball worlds have a lot of branding and sponsorship in them. So that's part of the fabric of reality of those worlds. But when branding is in a game that's not based on reality, like let's say GTA, is it necessary? Like what is the way for that to be done well? And I think there is potential for that to be done in a clumsy way. Yeah. I think the frequency of it is what's going to ultimately be its demise. Actually, I do have an example of another brand in a video game that I think is really funny. Yeah. Have you ever played Final Fantasy? Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. So Final Fantasy is weirdly obsessed with cup noodle. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I actually think it's because of something the video game creators yeah. like. But they did an entire mission based on Cup Noodle in the latest version of the game. Any food you make tastes better when you use good ingredients, right? Then, if you take something already delicious like Cup Noodles and add in the finest, freshest ingredients, what do you get? The ultimate flavor experience. So I ask you, Noct, what's your favorite ingredient? So I think that's doing things well, where it's not just like, a person eating cup noodle, but creating gameplay around a brand, which I think is similar to like what happens with Alex Hunter, right? Like there is gameplay around this product. Yeah. If I was to kind of outline what are the the value propositions of a video game that are in an RPG format, sort of like, because Final Fantasy is RPG. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Alex Hunter's The Journey is RPG. Yeah. What do you think are the main takeaways from that? And, you know, I think that if you can identify those takeaways, that's how you can see if branding and advertisements are effective. I mean, I have an answer in my head. I want to know your perspective. The thing I'm thinking about is I think it. I already enjoy the brands Cup Noodle and Coke and Adidas to some degree. Should I say Adidas? Should I re-say that and say Adidas? No, that's fine. <laughs> so I wonder how my RPG gameplay experience would be different if it was a brand that was unknown to me or I didn't think was particularly cool and then would I feel like they had more value because they were in this video game that I chose to play or do I just approve of these brand sponsorships because I already approve of that brand do you know what I mean it's kind of like Mm. the cart and the horse like which came first or sorry no chicken and egg yeah yeah so I was thinking that when it comes to RPGs you're obviously trying to create entertainment but you're also trying to remove people from reality yeah, potentially and, you know, do it in an authentic way. Or, but, but, okay. You just said remove people from reality, but another RPG, you know, objective is to be able to engage in our current world in a different way. Right. Like the Alex Hunter thing is a fantasy life or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like in that case, you want, the Alex Hunter storyline to be as real as possible because that's what people want. Yeah. Is to live out that dream yeah. in a way they can't. So, but I think RPGs are both, right? So like maybe. Fantasy. So in that case, the advertising is important. The advertising element of 
you know, Coke made a deal with FIFA for their inclusion in the game, right? And that's important to offer to players because being able to sign a sponsorship deal like that is significant to you as a video game player in fulfilling this kind of fantasy of being a big shot. Yeah. One thing that I do know has been interesting is like, soon you could enter a space where, and EA Sports has done this actually with Nike, where they released a boot that was exclusive to the game or inspired by the game. That's cool. So fast forward to FIFA 19, Alex Hunter is still on a tear. He gets an exclusive signature boot with whatever brand. And all of a sudden that boot is available for sale. Like now you're really trying yeah. to like combine these worlds. My I don't play NBA 2K, but my understanding is that the players wear the actual shoes that they wear in real life, like on you court. You can do that in FIFA too. Okay. Um, and it, it came out like, as an announcement that Lonzo Ball would wear Big Baller brand for 2K18. Yeah. So that's interesting to me. But that's more like a feedback loop. Like that's more of a video game reflecting real world instead of like asking for money for advertisement. What I wanted to talk about today with you is Pete Wells, the New York Times restaurant critic, explores some ways that technology has changed his industry and how he personally works. Yeah. So Pete Wells has been the restaurant critic at the NYT since 2011. And he mainly talks in this interview about digital photography in particular, and that has changed the way people interact with food, how they review food, and um, to a greater degree is also changing restaurant design, such as lighting in the dining room and even in the kitchen with additional areas for plating. He does say like on the plus side, you know, Instagram keeps a restaurant's buzz going for longer because people will continuously keep posting food pics. And on the negative side, you know, cooks are more focused on sending out dishes that will photograph well as opposed to tasting the best as possible. And have some level of extremity to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's a big thing. Yeah, well, wait, what do you mean by extremity? Like just basically the extremes like, oh, you know, if it's pizza, it has to have an abundance of cheese to make sure that when you pull it away, there's like this photogenic moment. Yeah, or thinking about plating or something that is a really distinctive feature that can also set their particular dish or that that particular restaurant apart. Um, there's There are also other positives, you know, restaurants and chefs can keep up to date through social media, but that's like not really something new. And he, he personally is able to take photos without, you know, anyone looking at him weird because yeah, it's, it's so common. He used to have to sneak off to the bathroom to take notes. Yeah. And he also said that he used to have to steal menus because he had to like, take notes on the food as opposed to being able to photograph each dish. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Now it's pretty expected. Yeah. And there are a couple of reasons why I picked this particular thing to talk about with you. One of them is this will be the episode where we disclose another thing that you do. 
your participation with That Food Cray. Yes. So That Food Cray is, I mean, it's a food blog, I guess, food and travel blog that my wife started, I don't know, five years ago. And it was really just something for fun. But it it's pretty popular, I guess. It's been more of a pastime of anything, but we're starting to take it a little more seriously and do other projects, which which I guess will soon be unveiled. I mean, it's not really the premise of of this discussion so much as like seeing that sort of trajectory of Instagram meets food bloggers meets where is everything going, right? Well, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about how Instagram or social media in general and cameras in the dining room has changed your and her reviewing experience because I I know you guys have been doing it for a while. And actually Pete Wells wrote an article about Instagram starting to change the way people interacted with food as early as three years ago. Yeah. Honestly, I don't, I don't love it, even though that's what that food grade is. What specifically don't you love? Just the very act of having to document everything. But I think there's also a lot of value you're bringing to people. Like I think food in general should be shared 100%. It's like, such an important part of a culture's fabric. And I've always said this, it's something that outlives political regimes, uh, generations, everything. But right? like my, my question in, my question to begin with is, has technology and social media changed the way you guys go about doing it? Or you guys have just been holding steady for like the past three years? I think there was probably points in time where you were thinking to yourself, oh, you know what? I'm not going to post this because no one cares about fine dining because it doesn't it doesn't have that immediate wow factor. Like the things that really draw a lot of attention are, you know, very pedestrian items. Ice cream, yeah. burgers, pizza, yeah. um, I'm yeah, sure burritos. Was, that was one of my specific questions yeah. as well. Is there a resistance to covering food that's not photogenic or not as viral? For us, we don't care anymore. Because I think that there was a phase where you I'm like sure there was, were really yeah. conscious of that. Yeah, like you you kind of know what people want, but at the same time, my goal, and I'm I'm sure Nicole shares it as well. Like, you know, it's not about it's more about putting people onto interesting things and to know that food can exist in this in this type of format. And I say format very loosely. It's like it could be uh it could be this assortment of ingredients that are paired together. It could be the way something is cooked. You know, there could be an ingredient that you've never known about or how they've applied it. So that to me makes it a little bit more interesting, right? There are certain things that maybe we wouldn't touch because it's just, it's tough to explain on social media. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, in Hong Kong, there's a lot of weird foods that aren't that weird, but you probably would struggle to, to find people. Like jellyfish. Jellyfish isn't even the worst one. It'd be like, let's say, like pork liver noodles or something, right? Right. Stuff like that. And I think you just need to be conscientious of what you're trying to do. I mean, I guess food reviews, it's kind of like if it's worth sharing, then it's probably worth going to, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we don't share it, then we probably don't co-sign it, mm. right? But not, I would, not even to like warn someone off. If If it was through word of mouth and someone asked, yeah. But I don't think that's, there's so much good food to be eaten and so much only limited amounts of time, right? Like, I don't think that that food cray is meant to be this hardcore critic. But it's just kind of strange that you can't like post a not good looking photo of the food. Yeah. Even if it didn't taste good. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I I really think that the the party touched upon has helped a lot and that's lighting. Like lighting in restaurants, Mm -hmm. especially at night, 
is very difficult. You know, I was, I didn't want to necessarily segue into this, but it was weird. I was on Reddit and there was this random comment where someone called out that food cray as an Instagram and said that they had a bad experience at a restaurant because we had set up an elaborate softbox and we had like all these things going on. And it was really like, I, there's undoubtedly a moment where we were shooting photos. I don't know if I was there or not, to be honest, but there's no way there was a softbox there. Yeah. Right? And it was weird. It was like someone was going out of the way to put out these, these comments. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's no photos on that food crate that have a soft box. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I think that's interesting because like people still have a lot of reservation about people sharing food experiences, which is kind of what I think was, maybe it was just like the level of time spent with each dish and the photography aspect of it. Oh, you know I, I, get, mean? I get what you mean now. So there is, like, oh, you know, but it, it is funny that that comment on Reddit, it does strike me as strange. And I feel like someone just has it out for, Got haters that out food there. Cray, maybe put the hater shades on. Because I feel like food photography has. There was, you know, you know, Instagram came on the scene and people were starting to take pictures of food. And there was all this backlash where people were like, "Oh, like don't take your phone out at the dinner table." But now that that's like totally over. Like people have grown completely accustomed. Or in my mind, I thought people had grown totally accustomed to this thing now. Yeah, and that it wasn't a big deal. I know that there are some restaurants that are still like. Yeah. I mean, especially in Asia, it's even less of an issue, right? I mean, I don't have any problem saying this, but like Nicole and I, when we we went on like a big birthday trip for her, we were in uh, Spain and went to some really good restaurants and no one was really upset with us at shooting photos. I mean, we weren't taking, you know, 10 minutes to shoot something. You know, it gets to the point where it's quite formulaic. I could see like, hey, you know what? If you're taking 10 minutes to shoot something because you don't have a good understanding of how to use a camera, which is fine too. Like maybe you're a beginner. That can ruin food. Um, but like I said, I it's not that I'm against it, but I, I honestly like to just be in the moment a I, little bit more. I did think it's really interesting how physical spaces are changing with regards to social media and yeah. digital photography in mind because we had actually also talked about this with Edward Barnier. Yeah when he came in for Sights and Sounds about how events are now set up completely with Instagram in mind with what are different backdrops, like different photo shoot points. And what to take away. I don't know. I'm not exactly, I don't know how I feel about it because I don't feel like it's an entirely negative thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're kind of figuring out what is, the problem in and to itself you're trying to solve is how do we get people to share about this event on social media? Not like what is the deeper message? True. Like True. I was, I was on Instagram yesterday and it was like some sneaker event. And I'm sure you saw the same thing where like everyone was had actually like, at that sneaker. Oh event. yeah. And like everyone had a, a ball, a clear ball with a sneaker inside. And there was like cookies that were in the likeness of a sneaker. And I'm like, what is this event about? I was like, is this event about, the giveaways or like, you know, I, there yeah, was actually more yeah. focus on the social media takeaway stuff yeah. than it was on the actual event. Yeah. I mean, I think that gets at the heart of it. Like to bring it back to the food and restaurant conversation, you know, the food still better be good. Like yeah. it can't just photograph nicely on a table. And that yeah. brings me to another reason I picked this because the fact that, okay, Pete Wells is an expert, right? 
And I trust that he knows what he's talking about when he says that kitchens are changing so that there's more space for plating and more time spent on plating. And that makes me kind of sad because I like my food hot. And what Pete Wells is saying is that cooks are Mm. thinking about dishes with the intention that, you know, this isn't going to be served particularly hot. And there's like going to be a bunch of lag time between like the completion of this dish and when it's on on your table. It probably could be hotter, but yeah, I mean. I'm not saying like I want something scalding, but just the fact that like, okay, a dish is completed, like it's been cooked and then there's still like this plating time and maybe they think about oh you're going to take photos so like i'm not going to give you something that's super time sensitive that kind of bums me out he had this quote that i like he says great food is rarely static as soon as it leaves the kitchen it's changing in general it's getting worse the souffle is sinking the arugula is wilting yeah and i think that's true and i just don't i would hope that there are still chefs out there that don't let that prevent them from making those dishes yeah. using those ingredients. Yeah. I think sushi is a good example as well. We have omakase. It's like it comes on in front of you and then you eat it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you wait, it's different because it's yeah. changing. Yeah. Right. But I, I, you know, the, the reality of it is that anytime there's an extreme, which, you know, are we at the extremes of social media food blogging? I don't know, but I think there's always going to be people that push back and kind of embrace it for the integrity of it, which is not these very photogenic food moments so much as what is actually good food Mm. and getting past the fact that it doesn't, obviously it doesn't look like poop, but it's still like, it still tastes amazing. I think there are three different kind of sectors of food reviews that I see. Big publications like the New York Times with their restaurant reviews and then Yelp or open rice yeah, with, you know, aggregate of everyone's reviews and then like food blocking, like that food cray. Yeah. And how do you personally use those three or do you use them? Uh, generally, the greater the barriers to publication are, the more I think you put your weight into it. Mm. Like if it's, it's obviously not easy to write for the New York Times. So I think that should be at the very top echelon. Right. And think about it. They're often, they have much more rigorous standards. Like they're definitely paying for their own food. Yeah. They're also ensuring they go to a spot multiple times, you know, True. three times Yeah, uh, for consistency purposes. And then as you start moving down, it's like, you don't really know. Yeah. Right. Like even for us, like. But there they, is like a space for the other, for food blogging and yeah. reviews, obviously. Yeah. There's definitely space for it. But then it's also like, you get, you get what you pay for. Right. I mean, we, we had that food cray, like, I'm sure if we wanted to, we could plan out every single meal of the day to get something for free, but I don't want to do that. Like, I think that compromises. I mean, there's food bloggers that do that, right? They'll be like, Hey, you know what? I want to come to your restaurant and I will share this on social media, but you know, we don't really do that at all. Like, I'm sure you can count on hand, on, on one hand, like the number of opportunities that has come up, but you try to disclose it. Like I would say in the past, like, when it was more of the wild, wild west, maybe we didn't really have a, we didn't really have a solid disclosure practice, but it's changing now. Beyond that, the minute you involve money and reviews, I think that's a very dangerous place to be. So that's kind of where we stand with that. Where I also wanted to take this conversation in a bit of a different direction from the article. So I don't know if you 
saw this in my notes. Deliberately but, didn't look at them. But how can tech change the restaurant industry in a better way? I think that when it comes to technology, what it what it does is, is serve information really well, right? And I think it's how can you find ways to educate people on the deeper meanings behind food beyond just the superficial. Like I would say Instagram is very superficial, right? It's like eye candy. Like how do you get people more involved, more educated? And I think that's the one thing that'd be really dope is I'm just making this up. Like you literally put this on me and like what happens with, you know, AR? I could put my phone over a dish and all of a sudden like, oh, you know, this this beef is from this farm and they've been around for 120 years. This was grown there, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm just thinking of ways you could interact with diners. There is already an AR food application, but I doesn't, I don't think it does what you're describing. Yeah, like I mean, you could do that, right? Find a way to like incorporate because what I th- I think is really Okay. Um, have you seen Portlandia? I'm I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with the show. Okay. There's a bit that I'm gonna try and find the clip of. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, The chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. Hazelnuts, these are local? How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm. It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And 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 you have a good relationship with this farm. We do. But it's not some guy on a yacht who lives in Miami. Oh goodness, no. Saying that he's organic. It just it tears at the core of my being the idea of someone just cashing in on a trend like organic. No, I know the type. No. Um, tell you what, we're gonna go check it out if you don't mind, just to get to hold our seats. Oh, no, no. Yeah, we'll be right back. Just make sure. Just clean off. Thank you so much. Much, Dana. Sure, sure. To me, food's greatest impact is the fact that it's obviously a primary need. Like we need to eat. The fact that it's so rich in culture. And to that point, like I alluded to earlier, it's like it'll outlive political regimes, different generations, etc. And there's so many great stories in food that people often are missing. So I think how can you find a way to use tech to, to yeah. present that? Yeah, actually, I kind of already came prepared with an answer and I sprung that one on you. Uh, thank you for rising to the occasion. Cause Pete All day, every day. Pete Wells wrote this other article, um, more of an op-ed, not a review, like uh, a month ago. And it's a wish list for new restaurants. And it's about these, he's highlighting restaurants that do good things in the names of diversity, like including more female chefs, converting unused spaces, hiring a more diverse staff. And he was saying, you know, I want more restaurants to do these sorts of things. And I was thinking, how can tech help with that? And I think that like part of what you're saying about education and just providing more information could be about that too. Like, can there be a way to promote these restaurants in tech, you know, using different platforms and in that way, encourage more of that kind of thing, as opposed to, I think we have enough, you know, good looking ice cream sandwiches. Yeah. Can we promote these other less 
food photogenic things yeah. about restaurants. Like, it'd be cool if you had access to the to the whole array of people that touched your food, right? Like in terms of preparation or like, you know, who was the sous chef, et cetera, et cetera. Who came up with the idea for this? What was their inspiration behind the dish? Yeah. Like there's a lot of cool things. I always thought it was so interesting in that people are coming up with these ideas for dishes all day, every day. And you're like wondering, man, I wonder where they came up with that. That question you asked is pretty legitimate. Thank you. I come ready for this podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should we cap it off for the day? Do you have any closing, closing thoughts? I do. I wanted to say thank you to one of our listeners, Benedetta A, who emailed me and she had listened to episode 13, said it helped her in adjusting the right monetary value to her work. Um, That's the money episode. And she also listened to episode 14, which was about blockchain and put us onto this um, idea of using blockchain to kickstart the financial lives of refugees. Oh, nice. And it's using blockchain to give refugees a digitally authenticated identity. So just hat tip to her. Yeah, that's cool. Man, that also makes me think like, it'd be cool if there's decentralized charities, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions as to, if you donate a dollar, how much of that full dollar or how what percentage of that dollar actually makes it to the right causes? Like I think Red Cross has been very, very much under attack for where their money goes. Yeah. I don't want to get into it. Anyway. But I would I think that maybe there's a show notes sort of link that could be shared there. Yeah. And please do continue to email, Slack, message us your feedback, um, good or bad. We love to hear it. Yeah. Sounds good. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can check us out at Macon.com and you can listen to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes, wherever, I guess wherever you found this podcast. Are you trying to be intentionally downbeat right now? To bring people up? Maybe. Okay. All right. Sorry. I'll let you do that again. All right. Where was I? Where was I before I was interrupted? Oh, yeah. Wherever you found this podcast. Wherever you found this podcast, just give us a review, you know? Tell someone about it. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. I don't know why it gets me every time. Can't handle the energy. <laughs>